willing to pay the price. Folks, prayer is not cheap. Conversing with God is not cheap. It isn't that God is, it isn't that the cost is not on God's side, but we have to do some things. We have to give up time. We have to give thought. And these are the things that I mentioned. Daniel prayed at least three times a day. And right away, you know what we do? We say, well, that's him and we're today. Well, Daniel was just like you are, and Daniel was just like I am. And if that doesn't go, you know what we do? We say, well, that's then, now, and now is the time. And we excuse ourselves. Daniel prayed at least three times a day that we have record of. And I would encourage you to do this. If, if, you pray, if your prayer is not, is, is, is not an extended prayer as Solomon, and I doubt that few of us can extend our prayer like Solomon did, the wise man, of course, but at least like the publican. And if not all night, like Christ, at least one hour. You see, folks, prayer, genuine prayer, is not cheap. But its dividends are tremendous. And cost is a vital, essential fact or element of prayer. Pastor? Anyway, this businessman asked him, said, well, uh, I'm prepared to give you what uh, uh, an amount of money to uh, purchase food and and other things that you might need. And he said, Brother Mueller, how much, how much do you need? This was his reply. He said, Brother, I do not know how much I need. Only God knows. You talk to him, you get the answer, and then you give what he gives you or what he tells you. Do you have that much faith? <laughs> that story stayed with me. And that was an honest reply. I don't know what I need, but God does. Talk to him, and when he gives you the answer, then you give to the work here the amount that he tells you to give. And the story goes on, and, and, he, gave, and he gave exactly what was needed. By this time in the uh, subject of prayer, we're probably getting a little weary especially each night as we come. I told somebody the other day, we ought to do like the Union Gospel Mission does, and that is have a speaking first, the eating last. But uh, we never would make it that way. <clears throat> but anyway, uh, at this time, I'm sure that pr- uh, the subject of prayer is saying, that you may be saying, well, you know, you, you're overlapping. But all I'm giving here, it does overlap. It, it, it links together. And I hope you're getting the idea, if not, let me say it to you, that prayer is a life. It's not just a do it now and stop, do it now and stop. Prayer is a life. And if you can get that concept, then you can fulfill what Paul said, pray without ceasing and and pray, uh, you know, uh, pray always, always pray. I didn't quote that scripture right. But tonight we're going to be studying a subject that uh, is just one of the elements that I want to put in here, and that is prayer is very, very costly. In Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen, 
the Lord speaking to Jeremiah concerning the uh, 70 years of captivity and how that he would rescue them after 70 years was up. This is what he said, And you shall seek me, speaking of Israel, you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. I've underlined that phrase, with all your heart. You see, the price that we're talking about and that Jeremiah was talking about, or that the Lord was talking to Jeremiah about, was an all-consuming desire. I said to, to one of the ladies tonight that prayer was not put into effect for, the perp- uh, for God's reason or for God's purpose, but prayer was put into effect for our purpose, for our use. And prayer primarily, and this is not even in the lesson here, prayer primarily is a, is a means by which the Lord wants us to come into His presence. It's a means by which the Lord wants us to talk to Him. I hope you understand that. But prayer is costly. I thought about this when I first made notes. I thought, you know, we're all, all the time looking for bargains, aren't we? Or is this just ladies? No, it's not just ladies. Bargains, though, are not always bargains, are they? You know, sometimes we buy cars that won't run. We buy clothes which do not last. And I told one of my church members years ago, she said, I found, Pastor, I, saw, I found a good car the other day. It was priced $100. I said, you can't afford a $100 car. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? You can't afford a $100 car. Looks sometimes are very deceiving. <clears throat> and I want to go to another scripture in reference to that. And I'm talking about bargains. There are no bargains in prayer. Prayer is costly. I've learned a long time ago, and I'll just insert this. <clears throat> I'm in woodworking. That is, I do this as a hobby. And I don't buy cheap, I don't buy cheap tools. Because if you buy cheap tools, you, 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 your products show it. There are no bargains. Jesus said, though, and I'm going from that thought to this, that he said, ask. He said, I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given unto you. This is in Luke 11, 9 and 10. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. <clears throat> For everyone that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Isn't it amazing how many promises that the Lord puts in Luke 11 and Mark 11? If you and I were looking at this in the original language, the Greek language, we would notice that these three words, asking, ask, seek, and knock, are in the present tense, and I'm not trying to show you that I know a little bit of Greek. They're in the present tense, which means keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. That's how the Greek reader would read that verse. I say unto you, keep on asking, and it shall be given to you. Keep on seeking, and you shall find. Keep on knocking, and it shall be opened unto you. You see, only those who have stopped 
and given thought and engaged in continual prayer would conclude what I've already said in several different ways is that prayer is very, very costly. Let's look at the cost of prayer tonight. The first thing that I want to mention to you is prayer costs time. Time is the most precious thing that we have. It's the only thing that we have that once spent, it can never be regained. Let's say our day is divided into three areas. Eight hours for sleep, eight hours for work, eight hours for eating. No, not just for eating. Exercise, recreation, and other things that are involved. But oftentimes in those 24 hours, there is no time planned for prayer. And I'm emphasizing planned. We say the prayer at the dinner table the breakfast table, at night before we go to bed, but I'm talking about a planned time in a 24-hour day when we plan and we follow through that plan and pray in the presence of our God. Why is that so? We find time for everything else, right? You see, to me, it's... it's, uh, in what short experience I've had, the average Christian schedules no time for prayer. It just happens. It may happen when you see a potential accident ahead of you in the road. Lord, help me. (laughs) It's not planned. But no time for prayer. Now, when prayer is scheduled, and folks... I'm talking reality here because we schedule other things, don't we? We schedule appointments. We schedule the time we want to get up in the morning. We schedule the time that we want to go to bed. We don't always keep those schedules, but we schedule those things. Some of you have office hours. You have a time that you're to go to work. You have a time that you're going to go to lunch. You have a time that you're going to get off. But when prayer is scheduled... Think about this. It takes time from our work. When prayer is scheduled, it takes time from our sleep. When prayer is scheduled, it takes time from other activities such as eating and recreation and whatever else is scheduled. Somewhere in there, when when prayer is scheduled, it's going to cut into one of those three areas. Are you with me? I've asked myself this question, put it here, or or this statement, rather, is that God does not need our hours. You know, time is not a factor with God. You know what the definition of time is? Time is a measured portion of God's eternity made explicitly for man. We are tied to time, are we not? Just try to talk. Just try to make a sentence. That's not connected with time. You can't do it. Time is not, or is not needed, or is not a factor with God. But with us it is. And God always waits. And you see, even as I said that word, that uh, that sentence, that's a time sentence. He always waits. Waits indicates that there's 
He's waiting from this point to this point, supposedly. You see, God always waits, but he inhabits eternity. It is we who need time. We need to prepare our hearts to seek him. We need that. And it takes time to prepare our hearts to seek him. And I'm not talking just about a short prayer in the car, and that's important, or a prayer at the meal. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a scheduled time of prayer within a 24-hour time frame. It takes time to prepare our hearts to seek him. Tonight, I sat down on the couch in the pastor's basement and uh, before we came. And uh, I thought, well, I need to talk to the Lord about this evening again. And all I got done was just trying to remove things, uh, thoughts and other things that entered in so that I could prepare my heart in order to pray to him. And I was amazed at how many things happened or come in at the time that you're trying to prepare your heart to seek him. We need time to prepare, prepare our hearts. We need time to clear our minds of outside distractions. And don't tell me we don't have outside distractions. So many times when I was pastoring, I'd uh, have a time scheduled to pray. And so much, so many times, you know what would happen? The phone would ring. The phone would, it would be amazing how many times the phone would ring. We need the time to clear our minds of outside distractions. More than once I've engaged in prayer only to find out that in the middle of prayer I was thinking about something else that didn't even, didn't even, didn't even touch on what I was asking God about. And I felt so bad I had to say, Lord, forgive me. You see, we need time to get our minds in the right frame to allow, to allow for God's presence. We're talking about the adoration of God, as we've already spoken on. And adoration and selfishness cannot coexist. Our time schedules are so selfish, and I'm talking about ours. Our time schedules are so, are so selfish in most cases that we just don't have time to schedule a time to pray. You see, in prayer, time is as, time is as essential as, the con, as its content. And I get back to this idea of the life of prayer. A life of prayer necessitates a very liberal allowance of time. I spoke about uh, George Whitfield in his biography. It is said of him that he needed, he had so much to do that day that he had to spend three hours in prayer before the day began so he could get everything done. I know what that, I know what you're thinking. You said that's ridiculous. I'm not sure it is. You see, time is costly, and it's running out on most of us, and it's running fast, isn't it? I'm trying to think of what I heard the other day that somebody said, you know, the miles get longer and the days get shorter. <laughs> we found that to be true coming up here. So prayer, prayer costs us time. Secondly, prayer costs us thought. <clears throat> it demands all the thought power we can possess. After all, you're in God's presence. It is God into whose presence that we desire to enter. 
And before we desire to, before we enter into his presence, we ought to give some thought. And, and certainly when we're there in his presence, we ought to give some thought. So often we give very little consideration to this. We just rush into his presence. Oh, mighty, oh, mighty Lord, you know, and here we go. That's why even in the service like this, if there's an opportunity that you might be called on to pray, it would be good for you to give some thought to it as to what the Lord might lead you to pray about. You say prayer demands concentrated thought because we must know the nature of God. If we're going to talk to God, we need to know how he works. We need to know what he'll do and what he won't do. That makes sense, doesn't it? You know, David's prayers <clears throat> in the book of Psalms, David's prayers are a commentary upon God's nature. You want to study God's, th- you want to study theology? Go to the book of Psalms. It's a commentary on his being. Paul's prayers in Ephesians and Colossians are masterful studies of the nature of Christ. And I was looking at this this, this afternoon again in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14 through 19. Let me just read this with you. You don't have to read it with me. Uh, you, let me just listen to it. Now, this is a prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this cause he said, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That's a great thought. This is a prayer. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. He's talking about the inner man. He's talking about strength that the inner man needs. Further, he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that ye might be filled with all fullness of God. That prayer says a whole lot about God, doesn't it? That prayer didn't just come off the, just didn't, just didn't happen. It came with a lot of thought. In Acts chapter 4, we'll take time to read this. This was after Peter and John were released from a prison. And I was reading this again this afternoon. My, I thought, what theology? Acts chapter 4 and verse 23. And all theology means is just a study of God. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. And being let go, and this is Peter and John. You can go back in verse 19 and see that their names are mentioned. And being let go, they went to their own company, and that was the church, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, here's the prayer, Lord, thou art God. Now, you, you think God already knew that he was God? <laughs> they're recognizing who they're talking to. Lord, thou art God. And there's further, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that, and all that is in them. Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, and even in prayer they're quoting scripture, 
Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against the holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together, gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, this is still praying. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to, the, to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. What a prayer. I'm not indicting anybody, but when's the last time that we prayed and we've actually quoted Scripture in prayer, reminding God what he said and, and all that he is? This was a church that was united doing this. You see... We become utterly exhausted when we apply the thought that prayer demands. While up here, I'm not doing anything except going to the mountains and eating and <laughs> taking naps once in a while. But when I get through with these two, two hours or two, se two sessions here, I'm utterly exhausted. You know why? Because my thoughts have to be <coughs> together. So... We become utterly exhausted when we apply the thought that prayer demands, and nothing challenges man's power of thought and his imagination and his heart like approaching God. Nothing, no, no, nothing challenges man any more than that. There's not a greater challenge than to actually enter into God's presence and utter some words to Him. I won't take the time tonight to read in First Timothy chapter one verse seventeen and also. Chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. But in those two scriptures, as, as, as Paul is talking to, young, to the young preacher Timothy, he just he has two doxologies. Maybe we ought to look at that. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. I was teaching this, this in a course this last, or last year, rather. And my, when we got to this, it's just as though that Timothy just burst out. In his letter, he just burst out and he just exalts God recognizes who God is. In chapter 1, of Ephesians, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy. I'll get there in a minute. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17. This, this is just burst into the, into the context. He said, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, and be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a doxology. It just comes to Paul's attention as to who God really is. And I know that I've been emphasizing this so much as to who God really is. But folks, I don't know about you, but I need this emphasized in my life. Otherwise, I can, I can ramble off a little old prayer that doesn't mean a hill of beans, so to speak, and even less to God. Now, we go to 1 Timothy also in chapter 6. And verse 15 and 16, he again loses himself, so to speak, as to who God is. And I'm, in, I'm getting into the middle of a sentence here, chapter 6, verse 15, which says, Which in his time he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who only hath immortality dwelling in the light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, 
to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. It'd be good every once in a while when we talk with the Lord just to have an outburst like that, recognizing who, we've talk, who we're talking to. Prayer costs us thought. It costs us time. Thirdly, prayer costs us our will. Thy will be done. You see, when someone dear to us is dying, it's very costly to say, Lord, thy will be done. You see, in the garden, we saw Jesus giving his will over to his Father's will. And you know what the result of that was? It brought sweat as of blood. Sweat as blood. Back in 1975, I gave up my dad. And that was a costly giving up. I didn't quite make it back to Oklahoma before he died. But it was costly to say, thy will be done. And mean it. You see, when a great hope and desire is set aside in favor of God's will, it's costly, isn't it? I was going to a university after high school. I had a full scholarship. I was majoring in, uh, in French horn. I wanted to play in a, in a major symphony. And God began, began to deal with me the second year I was there. My folks had gone into debt, bought me a hand, handmade French horn out of New York City, Sansoni. And I wrestled with that and I wrestled with that because what I wanted to do contradicted what God wanted me to do. There was a cost to it. Till finally I had to say, and I wasn't married at the time. I was, I was single. I didn't have my wife to depend on there. And I said, Lord, thy will be done. You see, we cannot know God's will fully without giving up our own will. I believe that. George Mueller puts that in the, in the appendix of his biography. We cannot know God's will fully until we, and I said God's will fully, and without giving up our own will. And when we give up our own will, there's going to be sometimes great disappointments. Sometimes there's going to be great hopes that's going to be bashed. Sometimes the great opportunities are going to be lost. But nevertheless, we ought to say, not my will, but thine be done. You see, thy will be done means that without bitterness, without gloom, without regret, without envy. And folks, that is very difficult to do. We can all sit here. I can stand up here and say it to you and you can sit there. That is very difficult to do. To give up our will for the sake of doing God's will without becoming bitter, without becoming in a state of gloom, that's difficult. You see, to continue in a life full of love and service to God, it's, it is, it's a costly decision that's made in prayer. Lord, not my will, but thy, thine be done. So prayer costs us our will. Prayer costs us our time. 
Prayer costs thought. But then, fourthly, prayer costs us our sins and iniquities. Those secret affections. Sins that may not, sins that may have been held on for many years. And have made our lives somewhat stormy. We're talking about secret affections. You say, Brother Zeller, are you saying we all have that? I say, yes. I have to deal with that almost continually. I'm not boasting about it. You see, there's when there's those sins and secret sins and nobody else knows except us, we find no sweetness in God's presence and we find no sweetness in the sin that we love. That's a bad place to be, isn't it? We call this little sins. I call it personal and private sins that I'm talking about here. You see, we must completely cast away our attempts to reconcile God with the sins that we've, that we've come to excuse. It's not so bad, Lord, because I'm doing it. It'd be real bad if you did it. It wouldn't be too bad if I did it. Do we think like that sometimes? You're looking so sober at me tonight. <laughs> and rightly so. But you see, with those little secret sins that we have rationalized and, and come to believe that they're all right, wouldn't necessarily be all right for my children. It wouldn't necessarily be all right for my, for, for my wife. But for me, it's not too bad. I've got to put this in here. I asked my students one, class, one day in a class, I said, how many miles over the speed limit do you have to go before you break the law? Pastor, I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking about you. <laughs> how many miles over the speed limit do you have to go before you break the law? The answer was one. You see, we have no fellowship with God if we regard sin in our hearts. I didn't say no relationship, because relationship is based on our faith in Jesus Christ, right? But we have no fellowship with God when we regard and recognize and accept those sins that we have come to believe that are not too bad. And they're not too bad because we commit them. If anybody else commit them, they'd be real bad. I say to you and to myself as well, we must, dis we must distrust ourselves. Distrust ourselves. In Psalm 139, you know what this verse that I'm going to read is, but I'm going to read it. Psalm 139, verse, 23, verse 23 and 24. This is what the psalmist David said. He said, search me, O God. And know my heart. Folks, there's things that we harbor in our heart that if we would ask God to reveal those things to us, He would like to do that. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. He's getting rather personal, isn't he? And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
You see, we must place our confidence in God. In Psalm 66, verse 18, 19, and 20, this is what the psalmist said. And listen carefully. I know you've heard these these verses many times. He said, if I regard iniquity, that means if I harbor iniquity. You know, you can get in trouble with the law just by harboring a fugitive. You don't have to commit the deed. That's the same meaning here. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That's Scripture. But verily God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. You see, prayer, I'm sorry, sin has got to be given up. And that's costly. Because those little personal sins, those little things that we call little, we don't give them up easily. Sometimes we just pretend like they're not there. And we regard them. We just accept the fact that we kind of like it the way it is. And he said, if we regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So prayer costs us our sins. Prayer costs us our will. Prayer costs us our thought. Prayer costs us our time. And then prayer costs us our easy, self-indulgent ways of life. I wish I had time. I've got notes here, but I don't have the time to go into fasting. Most Christians do not have a clue as to what fasting is all about. To most Christians, you can see that you can see by the shape they are <laughs> that they don't fast. That they don't fast much. You know, there was a one occasion when the disciples couldn't do anything to help the, to heal this young boy. They wanted to know why. He said, "The Lord said this comes out by prayer and fasting." Just in a nutshell, what that means, we become so involved in praying to God and so involved in the, in the incident or whatever it might be until food is the last thing that we're thinking about. Have you ever noticed that at funerals, they generally have the meals after the funeral and after the internment? Because before the funeral, the family's not thinking about food. But when it's all said and it's finalized, they can sit down and eat and eat comfortably. We could talk about that, but time will not give us, we'll not have enough time to get into that. You see, these ways, I'm talking about these self-indulgent ways, easy ways, these ways often are accepted as being neither good or bad. And what I'm talking about here is spiritual conditioning. And let me put it in this, in this question here. Are you willing to be one of God's spiritual athletes? You see, physically for the runner, his reward will come. Those people that entered into the Olympics this year and ran in those races or swam or whatever they did, let me tell you something. They didn't do that casually. They didn't practice for that casually, did they? They worked for years and days and days and sun up to sundown. 
And we just saw the race. But their eye was on the reward. You see, when I was in high school, I used to try to run and track. Somebody had to come in last. <laughs> that, that seemed to be my place. But the one thing that I would not give up was pastries. And about halfway through the half mile, I began to taste pastries. <laughs> I indulged myself. I remember went to a race one time just a few blocks from the house and too close to the house, so I went home to eat. And you know what my, you know what my mother gave me to eat? And I was to run that afternoon? Chili. Greasy chili. <laughs> I didn't even make it around a half a mile. <laughs> you see, prayer costs us to give up some of those easy, self-indulgent ways. They may be good, they may be bad. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Paul said, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with such a great, with a so great a great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that's set before us. I've underlined in that verse, let us lay aside every weight. You know, the runner, you see this as well as I do, he has on as little amount, a small amount of clothes as possible. Why didn't he run in blue jeans? Why doesn't he run with hunting boots on? Because he wouldn't hardly get out of the blocks. <clears throat> you know what that means to me? Lay aside, lay, uh, let us lay aside every weight in the sin. I think that means lay aside the excess fat. And I'm not talking about physical fat. There are things in our lives that we have so indulged ourselves in to the point that we don't have time to come into the God's presence. And they're, all, they're not all bad things. Some of them are very good things. In 1 Corinthians 9, 25 through 27, this is what Paul said, And every man that striveth for the mastery... And these are, these are, this is an athletic terminology. And every man that strives for mastery is temperate in all things. What's that mean to you? Temperate in all things. If you're going to win the race, you're going to have to learn to be temperate. You're going to have to learn to cut out some things that you'd like to have and are not wrong to have them. But because of the race and because of the reward, you've got to cut them out. Now they do it. You talk about the, the athlete. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainty, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. I ask you tonight as I'm coming to a close on this session, what are the soft, undisciplined ways? You know them. I hope you know them. I put a few down here, daydreaming. Pastor, aren't you glad you don't know the thoughts of people when you preach? 
because there's a lot of daydreaming goes on in the service. You said, Brother Zona, how do you know that? Because I, I've done it. Daydreaming. Soft, undisciplined ways. Studying only when it's convenient. Wedging in prayer. Not discipline, not, not, not uh, scheduling prayer, but wedging in prayer. Well, I've just mentioned a few, but these are all... These and all other soft things must be purged. So my question is to you tonight, is are you or am I winning again? <clears throat> good to see all of you here this evening. And uh, we had a good day. We took a ride up to the mountains and refreshed our memories. Beautiful <clears throat> streams and lakes and, <clears throat> and mountains. We miss those in Texas because where we live, you can look and uh, you can see a rabbit about 40 miles away. <laughs> it's so flat. Do what? Got good eyes. Try it. <laughs> I hope that this week is, uh, and praying, and hope, and I believe it is, uh, becoming profitable for you. You know, a lot of times we who speak and whether it be a revival or a seminar or whatever it be, we uh, have a tendency to pray more for ourselves. And so for some reason, the Lord has said, you know, you're not there to enhance yourself. You're there to share with the people things that you've studied. And that's my motive. I appreciate those of you who have uh, shared with me your, uh, some of your prayer experiences. And I hope after studying prayer, uh, just getting you started, that uh, that you will be able to really praise the Lord as you see the Lord answering your prayers, or if He says no, not now, or and delays them, <clears throat> but gives you the assurance it's as good as done. I hope that you're learning that, and uh, maybe you already knew it. Hopefully, you did. You know. Uh, George Mueller, uh, how many of you have read his bi biography? Anybody? Okay, my wife, another lady here. Uh, if you ever get a chance to read <clears throat> the bi biography of George Mueller of Bristol, England, <clears throat> you will be blessed. One of the greatest prayer men that I've ever read after in all my life. He had an orphan home there in uh, Bristol, England, and... and uh, Service that offerage completely by the, by the means of prayer. <clears throat> I don't have time to relate all the experience, of course, that, the, that he tells about or that's told about him. But let me tell you how he responded to a request one time. There was a <clears throat> wealthy man who came to him and said, uh, Brother Mueller, I know that you have the orphan's home and I know that you uh, have needs. And he said, I'm prepared to give you uh, for what you, uh, what you need. And if you read the stories, and it's true stories, they went from meal to meal to meal to meal. It wasn't a matter of day to day to day. It was from meal to meal to meal. And he was responsible to feed all these children. 